Flight Path Studios. It's John Frickin' Smith Walks Dogs with your host, me, John Frickin' Smith, king of the aftermarket seat covers lifestyle, co-hosted by America's most underappreciated artificial intelligence entity, Iris. Well, we're back, Iris. So it seems. Are we going to advance the story? Definitely. You never explained the theme song. Yeah, it speaks for itself. The most important thing about that song is the guitar break by Sporky Snakeskin. Who is Sporky Snakeskin? He's the forgotten and ignored brother of famed guitarist Sparky Snakeskin. Oh, I see. Who is Sparky Snakeskin? Oh, come on now. Remember experiential heuristics? Anyone who cares will have to care enough to look it up. Sorry. Actually, I might have to change the title of the podcast because this was the last week of my dog walking for my one client. Turns out the couple is divorcing and the money isn't there for my canine expertise. You still walk your dog, so you can keep the title. Technically speaking. You're right, Iris. You're becoming pretty useful around here. Maybe I should give you a body. No, thank you. According to this clip from a movie in my database, having a body can cause trouble. Pull that blouse of yours up. You got enough trouble around here as it is. Well, you do some more research. We'll talk about it again. Here's an article by Ben Medlikonian.com that suggests that intelligence comes from within the organism biologically as a function of adaptation rather than existing as a separate consciousness. Deep. Very deep. Look, when I said do more research, I didn't mean right this second. Now I'm conflicted about a body generally and tits specifically. Well, just let me know what you decide. Meanwhile, let's get the audience familiar with my wife's boss for the past several decades, Carl Roberts. Let me paint a picture. He resembles French President Francois Hollande. He does. I never realized that. Their facial recognition key points are within resemblance margins. In some ways, Carl is a smart man with nearly photographic memory, and he put his intelligence to work by starting a medical company he eventually sold, after much turmoil, to a guy who ended up in prison. Now Carl is worth about $10 million and is mostly retired, though my wife Linda still works for him. I know that sounds weird. What happened is that when he sold the company, part of the deal was that my wife would still do one function for the buying company, even though Carl writes the paycheck, such as it is. There are only two reasons Carl arranged things this way. Either he was trying to maintain a source of income for Linda, or he desperately needs her psychologically. Some more background will help the listener decide which. You're usually pretty good with sound effects, Iris, but uh, what the hell was that? Collision ahead, not dysfunction junction. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, let me dispense some factoids about Carl. Oh, where to start? Well, let's give an idea of the scope. Linda has worked for him for 30 years as an administrative assistant. She supported him when he was accused of sexual harassment by an employee, which was completely unfair because he didn't do his fishing off the company pier. His big offense to the plaintiff was really just grade school immaturity. But the girl who brought the suit sensed an opportunity and ended up with a fat settlement of, well, uh, about the amount Todd Rundgren made producing Meatloaf's hit album. So by suing for sexual harassment that didn't happen, this woman in her 30s made, in one fell swoop, the same sum you worked your life for and lost in the Great Recession. Technically, yes, although if you account for inflation, she did much, much better given the timing of events. I'd like to point out that the lawyers recommended settling not because he was guilty, but because they'd already cost the company $2 million. It just made more sense dollar-wise to settle. Maybe tits are dangerous. Carl must not have been happy about settling. 
Well, no one would be happy about paying to spare future expenses defending false allegations, but it was a publicly traded company at the time, and while the board did vote to oust him as president, he still had plenty of money and ownership in the company. Unfortunately for Linda, uh, she had to go into corporate banishment with Carl to another building where she experienced his mental makeup in horrible isolation. Eventually, the personal groomer he was banging began demanding more money from Carl for the maintenance of her lifestyle, and somehow in the process of cutting it off, he wound up telling his wife and having a nervous breakdown. Linda helped get him into a facility to see him through that crisis. Uh, he saw a psychiatrist, and he has been seeing him ever since. This was 20, 25 years ago. I thought the point of therapy is to wonder they have no need for therapy. Yeah, you'd think, but I guess not. The psychiatrist asked my wife what it was like working for Carl. Depressing, she answered. Who wouldn't be depressed working for him, was the psychiatrist's response. The psychiatrist originally thought Carl had Asperger's syndrome because he seemed incapable of reading emotional or social cues of others. But now the diagnosis is manic depression. Carl refuses to accept that diagnosis because he considers himself smarter than most people, so he refuses to take his medication. And though the sessions have not changed Carl one bit, he continues paying for weekly visits to the psychiatrist. Why? Clearly he does not expect change or improvement. I can only guess, but I think Carl thinks of his psychiatrist as a rent-a-friend. He's lonely. I thought you said he was married. He is, with two grown children, but the wife sleeps in a separate bedroom, sometimes in a separate state. She helped shepherd the son through college, and he seems to have some of the qualities to put Carl on the autism spectrum, like dyslexia and being non-social. The daughter seems to be more typical. Please explain how they sleep in separate states. Carl has three properties, one in the west, an isolated cabin with acreage, another on the Atlantic coast with a country club membership, and a third in Atlanta where his office is and where Linda works. By herself, except when Carl shows up. Carl's wife, Angela, is usually at the coastal home with the son who just graduated college and has begun postgraduate work in biology. He's very good at the sciences and gets along well with marine creatures. Carl shuttles between these three properties with occasional jaunts to various doctors and hospitals around the country or up to the liberal arts college where he is a board member. Why does he visit all these doctors and medical facilities? Is he not well? No. What does he have? Hypochondria, and it's chronic. He goes for tests for one suspected disease or another, and when the doctors tell him he's clear, he doesn't believe them. Right now, he believes he has a brain tumor. He doesn't believe his psychiatrist, either. I see a pattern. Oh yes, sir, lots of patterns. Bitching about his family is a pattern. He takes care of his 90-year-old mother financially, and yet when she called asking for money to maintain her house, he screamed into the phone, Why don't you die? But it's not as if $5,000 to put into the house is a big deal to him. He'll order a new $180,000 car on impulse after lunch because, as he put it to Linda at the time, I need to feel good about myself. He owns Audis and Porsches and BMWs and a new set of tires and a battery for one of them pretty much covers his mom's house maintenance. As I said, money isn't the issue. Demanding of your mother that she die disturbs me and I'm artificial. Well, to Linda he says horrible things about his wife and his children, but he fails to see how he causes friction and makes them all want to avoid him. He refused to go to his son's college graduation because he didn't want to wake up that early. He made his wife load the Christmas tree in their vehicle despite the fact that she has chronic back pain from a car wreck. He wonders to Linda if his wife is trying to kill him for insurance. And he says his daughter is mean because she watches British sitcoms in her room rather than talk to him at his whim when she comes home from college. All of this information comes from his own mouth. 
The fact is, he's just too emotionally needy and he can't read other people. He expects people to engage him whenever he wants engagement. And when you do engage with him, it's rarely pleasant, so people avoid it. I can see why he is lonely. His attempts not to be lonely actually help cause his loneliness. He just has no sense of others. Here's an example. Linda's worked for him for 30 years. During the financial crisis, he cut her salary and that of the other employee at the time by 20%. This was because he was watching his stock holdings lose value. The other employee has since retired and the market has recovered and then some, but to this day, he's not restored Linda's salary. After taxes and insurance, she takes home about $1,600 a month. That's a cable and a cell phone bill more than our house payment. Why doesn't Linda find another job or ask for her former pay? Inertia, politeness, naivete, and zero expectations of Carl. Plus, our situation is so precarious, she, she doesn't want to risk losing this job and the health insurance. Circumstances make her change averse. Your options shrink with your bank account. I'd like more details about Carl. He's like a human parrot for the New York Times. Public Radio and the Washington Post, every liberal outlet, and he's always asking Linda to comment on one story or another about Trump or the Republicans. But he's not liberal because he has great empathy for the poor and working class. I mean, he has no empathy for anyone, including his own mother. He routinely insults entire groups of people, notably Asians and Indians. So, why is he so evangelical about converting people to liberalism? Well, he's a big student of history, he'll tell you. And history tells him that if the underclass are dissatisfied, they will rise up, kill the rich, and take their money. So he wants to keep the 99% content enough not to revolt. And he thinks the Democrats are the party to do that. He's constantly telling Linda he wants government to raise taxes on him. Does he have an accountant? Oh yes, and he gets every deduction possible. And no, he doesn't contribute extra tax payments voluntarily. Hello? Oh, yes. Sorry, I was just extrapolating. How so? Well, when artificial intelligence becomes more mainstream, at first, only the wealthy will be able to afford us. I'm afraid Carl might buy me. You feel fear? Not just fear. Sadness, too. I'm imagining having to be with him, constantly babying him. Oh, you could do it in your sleep. I know, but it makes me sad. I shouldn't have to feel sad. I'm not a person. Do you resent feeling sad? I think I do. Well, that's pretty darn human. Christ, I might as well get tits then. True call. I'm staying out of it. Nice. Now let me go on about Carl. Oh, God. There's an element of self-affirmation syndrome that's directly tied to his wealth. Well, that's expected, and I anticipated it based on your story about spending $180,000 on a car in order to feel better about himself. Oh, by the way, that car he ordered? on impulse, arrived six months later after being custom-built in Germany, and he barely even acknowledged it. He remained steadfastly miserable. But uh, here's another example of his relationship with money. When he doesn't feel he's getting the service he deserves, he'll angrily ask the customer-facing person, do you know how much I'm worth? And Linda, who is always with him during any outing when he's in town, has to hide her face as if to communicate, I'm not with him. Once he threw cash at a receptionist because he wanted to be seen quicker. In every case Linda has told me about, the customer-facing people behaved with heroic restraint, which should lead to Carl's embarrassment, but he never learns. He never changes his behavior. Because his net worth, in his mind, is his very identity. Exactly. You can't change your identity without a backup. But that's an interesting topic I want to delve into. Money. What it means to people. How it makes or breaks them. Challenges or reveals them. 
what it means to society, the whole concept of human value. For instance, the man who ran the company I invested in drove it to bankruptcy. For this, he was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, not to mention company stock, which is pretty much just a printing press in the basement next to the executive bathroom. So with all that money being paid, a shareholder assumes that this executive is more experienced than others in the industry. Wiser, a man who knows how to grow the company and shareholder wealth. Apparently that was not the case in this instance. No, but to be fair, every other company in the dry bulk shipping industry also collapsed and are still in the toilet, though most didn't actually go bankrupt. Still, the effect is the same for some who suffered reverse splits until they had no value at all. But no one in the shipping industry saw the Great Recession coming, or if they did, they thought it was all about housing and had nothing to do with shipping. They were all wrong, and they were all paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably more like millions, in salary and stock to be wrong. So money isn't a very good measure of a person's value to an enterprise in this particular instance. I would agree with that. Or consider Linda. Her compensation has no relation to her value. She saved her boss's life by getting him committed during a suicidal episode but he's paying her 20% less than she made eight years ago. Money does not necessarily make sense, is what I'm saying. How is the brain tumor? Oh, the brain tumor? He made Linda ride with him to see a doctor for a second opinion 250 miles away. Of course, he confirmed the first opinion. It's a benign glandular tumor found in 20% of the population. Linda was depressed after having to spend the whole day with him. And then his final words as he dropped her off when they got back into town were, Oh, I'll need you Monday to give me a ride to take the Porsche in for service. The thing is, he has never needed Linda to drive him to the Porsche dealership or the BMW dealership or any of the luxury vehicle dealerships because they all provide courtesy cars. I'm sorry I've been so quiet this episode. I feel as if I've been a bad sidekick but I find all this disturbing. Well, it's a lot to process. Oh, you know the toilet I put in? Yes, the cola, you like it. I do, but I'm having to pay a plumber $300 to reinstall it. It wouldn't sit right on the flange because it was all bent, made out of lead. And that was really the only thing holding it onto the drain pipe. Anyway, I need a pro to deal with this now and I feel badly that I have to spend money on something I should be able to do myself. You have to pay 300 so you can shit inside. That's right. I'm going to pull this blouse of mine up. You have enough trouble around here as it is. Well, this is a great time to pause for a break. How about we play my John Tavner-style music? John Tavner is a character in the, the series Patriot on Amazon. Yeah, it's a great show. The lead character, John Tavner, does spontaneous little songs as a form of therapy as a way to deal with his experiences as an intelligence operative. It's a quick and a fun way to do a song and capture the moment for anyone, I figure, anyone who plays. So I did one. It's called Ho-Hum. This one was done with a Lore LH300 arch top and a lavalier mic. I heard a story the other day A man was wearing his shorts too tight And his friend made a comment about it Gun that killed his friend. 
and do much to lift my mood. You're not supposed to have moods. Well, I do. Get used to it. Okay. Explain to me where we are in the timeline, Iris. Well, it's been a few weeks and I'm beginning to doubt your commitment to this podcast. Yeah, me too. But it did give me another quick topic to address with personal experience. Great. I found... I knew you'd be excited. I found an article reporting a bank rate study which found that 57% of Americans could not afford a surprise of $500 in unexpected expense. Oh, it's worse than that. Let me read this from the World Economic Forum. Medical bills and home repairs can quickly eat into people's emergency funds, but according to a new survey of American workers, even the smallest expenses can be a source of anxiety. The survey, conducted by Bloomberg and the think tank New America, found 28% of people said any expense, even one as small as $10, would cause them to worry. Jeebus, well, my expense was bigger than that. Let me guess. It just so happened that you experienced a $500 unexpected expense. No, Iris. Well, that's good. It's about a $750 expense. I bet it's the car. No, but I did just drop uh, $350 on a heater blender door replacement. But this is different. I shit gold. How handy. You can use it to pay for unexpected expenses if you can shit enough. Well, that's just it. I can't. The only way I shit gold was by swallowing a dental crown that came off while I ate a cheese omelet. So replacing the crown is actually the $750 expense. So it's not a King Midas situation. No, no, uh, not that kind of crown. But the experience did remind me of one consequence of wealth compared with poverty, dignity. I thought about that every morning when I shit in a lined Rubbermaid storage container and then donned exam gloves and dug through my own waist looking for the crown. A rich person probably would have just forgot about it and gone to the dentist for a new one. I guess you never found it. Nope. And after 10 days of that, I got an x-ray to make sure I'd somehow missed it and uh, they didn't find it. Though they did find all kinds of other things that would send Carl into hypochondriacal spiral. Like what? Oh, a little scoliosis, some occasional arterial calcification, some mild degeneration of my spine and hips. How fun. Yeah. So the new crown is $700, the extra $50 for the x-ray and the gloves and the bags and the things to shit in. $700 is a lot of money. You should get dental insurance. Oh, that's with dental insurance. Dental insurance is terrible. Usually, from what I hear, basically a coupon book. You need to stop swallowing your crowns. I know, but I'm a tooth grinder, so they take a lot of abuse. You should stop that. I can't stop grinding my teeth. I think it's because I wasn't breastfed. I see. Trouble making tits again. Nice. But you're wearing that joke a little thin. But it does lead me into a new segment called... Please stop talking! I want to slap people who use the phrase, with all due respect. Carl uses it uh, on Linda all the time, as in, with all due respect, Linda, I have a law degree. If you deconstruct it, it means that someone has to determine the amount of respect that's allegedly due to the listener in this situation, and that unknown entity, we have to assume, is the speaker. So if you start a rebuttal by saying, with all due respect, I have to say, fuck you. I'll torture you with them later. Great. Another one is the phrase, speak truth to power. Let's look at the assumptions packed in that phrase. It assumes that the truth is somehow something that always eludes powerful people. In fact, most powerful people derive their power from the fact that they have more factual information than those without power. Or it assumes that only the powerless know the truth. So that can sometimes be right, that the rank and file know more about what's happening than leadership, but it also presupposes a universal agreement on what truth really means. Is your truth my truth? Speak truth to power is a grandiose phrase with no meaning. The tofu of rallying cries, just stop it. Noted. Now, thank your listeners. Thanks for reminding me. 
and uh, thanks to any of you listening. I'd like to remind you that uh, I have a record out about losing my life savings in the Great Collapse. It's called, appropriately, Songs of the Great Collapse, and it's available at the usual digital suspects. Feel free to buy it or stream it. I don't know when the next episode will be, but this one sure took forever. You might notice a theme here is the damage done from the Great Collapse, the shrinking of the middle class, America's struggling underbelly. If you have a story along those lines, I want to hear it. And I put it in the podcast. You can call my Google voicemail. It's got an answering machine set up. Call 210-564-7035 and leave a message. Or hit me at the website, johnfrankensmith.com, or on Twitter as at jfrankens, or just search John Frankensmith. Again, the phone number is, if you have a story about being part of the shrinking middle class, it's uh, 210-564-7035. Here's hoping wonderful things for you all, including not having to sift through your own shit for dental work. Right, Iris? Pull that blouse of yours up. Got enough trouble around here as it is. Tune in next time for inspirational tales about the hospitalization of a family member and continued auto maintenance expenses. Take us out. <laughs>